This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Ancaster a hacking suspect Karim Baratop now faces the possibility of extradition to the United States over his participation in hacking 500 million Yahoo accounts in 2014. Uh, they included politicians, journalists. Uh, it's still, though, at this point, up to an extradition a judge to decide if enough evidence is there to proceed. To talk more about all of this, uh, Giddy Ma'amon is with us, senior partner, founder of Ma'amon and Sandaluk Kingwell LLP. He's an immigration lawyer and with us now. Hello, Giddy. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to join us. So what will happen in court tomorrow, Giddy? Well, it's hard to say. They're going to probably be uh, scheduling... Um, you know, dealing with scheduling matters. These things actually take quite a long time. Uh, we're not really expecting any fireworks tomorrow. Uh, what the court is going to have to do ultimately uh, is to decide whether or not there's some evidence upon which uh, these allegations uh, can lead to a conviction. So that process uh, is time-consuming. Uh, this is probably the first appearance since he was denied bail, so there'll probably be a lot of legal maneuvering about uh, when to, uh, you, you know, uh, when and how to proceed over the, next, over the coming months. Um, what happens in the meantime? Uh, uh, obviously, you said this takes a, an awful long time. Tomorrow, it sounds like more procedural than anything. Right. Uh, this time that is spent uh, incarcerated here, I understand, does not count in the United States in any way. That's right. He's going to, you know, he was denied bail. Um, there was a, uh, you know, a provisional arrest warrant issued, uh, and uh, the Ontario court denied bail for a number of reasons. So uh, it looks like he's going to be detained uh, until this thing is over. And then once he reaches the United States, of course, uh, you know, he, 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 he could apply for bail there once he's formally charged. But given the allegations, it looks like he may be in custody for a long time. Uh, any idea how long it would take between now and he actually ends up across the border? It, it, it depends on what they do. I mean, if they just concede to the extradition, it would go a lot more quickly. And, and in fact, a lot of people do that tactically because they're just doing dead time here. They would rather be doing uh, time sitting in the United States uh, and be given some credit for it as pretrial uh, custody, but this is not pretrial custody. This is just extradition custody, and so that's not going to be given. He's not going to get any credit for that. So a lot of the people that we've seen over the last few years uh, really take that into account. But here, uh, you know, Beratov might be a bit of a different a different situation because he may face a really long stretch in the United States. So you know, um, trying <coughs> excuse me, trying to uh, claim uh, credit for a year or two of uh, pretrial custody. Uh, may not be the primary factor. He may try to, you know, he may try to go the whole way and try to beat the extradition, which is very difficult to do. It, it's only happened a few times in connection with extradition requests in the United States. Is there an advantage for him staying here? The longer he stays here, the better. Or, as you mentioned, it just delays everything. You know, it cuts both ways, especially uh, with respect to the receiving country. Right. So, if he puts up a big fight here. Uh, and that's taken into account on the other side. Uh, that may go uh, and, and weigh in favor of a, of a larger sentence. Uh, at the same time, you know, if, um, if a country, for whatever reason, has political considerations that they want to appear uh, that they got their man and they got their man quickly, uh, there may be some bargaining that is going on that will help to reach an agreement to limit the sentence to a certain maximum. So it really depends on the, the dynamics of the, the, of the charge and the receiving state. And the lawyer here who is going to be fighting the extradition is going to have to decide how much of a fight he wants to put on. Does he want to annoy the receiving country? Uh, you, you would take that risk, perhaps, if you thought you could beat the extradition. But if you don't think you can beat the extradition, you're going to have to face justice there, and you don't want them standing at the sentencing uh, hearing saying, you know, this guy kept us fighting for years in Canada to get an extradition, which should have been uh, fairly routine. So there's a lot of consideration. Uh, the fact that he has been denied bail here, that wouldn't change if he delayed this any longer, would it? Uh, or could he go back and reapply for bail saying this is taking forever? No, no, I wouldn't expect that uh, 
uh, that this decision for bail um, will be overturned. If, if they've appealed the decision, that's fine. Uh, but there is a lot here uh, to support the judge's finding. It would be very difficult to, to hold that that finding was unreasonable. You know, he has uh, access to a lot of money. Uh, apparently, he has ties to uh, Russian government, Russian officials. Uh, he's got the kind of skills that scare judges, which is basically uh, the ability to manipulate technology. Uh, he knows how to crack into things, and uh, that kind of mindset uh, makes a person sort of very slippery, and it'll be very concerning uh, to a court uh, to release him because they don't know exactly what his capabilities are. Uh, you know, even even uh, electronic monitoring, you know, through an ankle bracelet was, was rejected by the judge. Um, and also the, the public outcry if something went wrong. And here's a guy who hacked into allegedly uh, 500 uh, million uh, accounts. Um, you know, if he were to be released on bail and then just disappeared, uh, how would the public react? And, and the court is always concerned about the public confidence in our legal system. So I don't know that he's going to be getting uh, getting out of jail anytime soon. Um, would he already have obtained the services of a U.S. lawyer at this point? Would he need that, or does that not happen until he's actually extradited? Well, typically that's one of the first things that happens. Uh, right when when we're in a case like this, we are usually reaching out right away uh, to a U.S. lawyer uh, for guidance. Uh, you know, to see how they're feeling over there about this case. Uh, but I think this case has attracted uh, a lot of uh, public notoriety. Uh, so, you know, it's a, lo- it's a lot different, for example, when somebody is wanted for a, uh, a sort of more mundane crime, which hasn't hit the public, uh, the public eye. Uh, there, you know, you want to see how the Crown is feeling, not the Crown, how the, um, uh, the prosecution is feeling in the United States. Uh, but in a case like this, I'd be surprised to see if there was any wiggle room uh, for Mr. Baratov at all, because this is a high-profile case. He's exactly the kind of guy that they want to make an example out of. So I don't know that uh, there's going to be much room uh, for negotiation between the, uh, uh, the the American lawyer that he's going to retain uh, and the uh, the district attorneys in the United States. That was my next point, Giddy. The fact that there has been so much attention made uh, around uh, Russian interference, Russian hacking, this sort of thing, uh, does that make uh, the U.S. want this person even more? I think so. There, there is a, a very strange sort of political uh, theater going on in the United States right now dealing with Russia. You know, it's even hard for me to understand exactly what the allegations are, but now you have a fellow who is apparently and allegedly working with the Russians, and they're hacking into things. And this is the wrong kind of uh, uh, dynamic that you want to you want to be going to the United States uh, under. I mean, I would be terrified if I was him, uh, because I have no doubt that the political mood in the United States right now is to point a finger somewhere, and they've got Karim Beratov, who um, may be viewed as one of those people who helped to, you know, upset the American election or something. Who knows where this is going to go? So I, I would be very nervous for this uh, for this young man. Does that uh, does that have any weight, uh, Giddy, with Canadian officials? Uh, would that could that work in his advantage in any way? Look, the guy's going to be a scapegoat. Uh, They're going to. Does that matter? Right. Absolutely, it does. Uh, so right now, the court is simply going to decide, the way courts always decide, uh, is there evidence? They're going to look at the evidence, examine the evidence. Was it legally obtained, if that evidence was uh, here obtained in Canada? Um, is there enough here uh, to, uh, you know, to connect him to a, uh, a, a charge, to s- support a charge? That's, that's a, a legal decision, and that's done by the court. And if the court feels that there is, they're going to issue a committal for extradition. But then it goes to the desk of the Minister of Justice, and he has to decide on a political level whether or not to surrender him to the United States. So one is a legal process, the other one is completely a political process. So the Minister of Justice, if he feels, yeah, there's some evidence, but I'm not going to throw this guy to the wolves. You know, they're in a mood right now where they're just looking for blood, uh, and I don't want that. So he could reject 
uh, the request and and keep Veritas in Canada. Now, you know, again, you have to look at the political dynamics. Canada and the United States were very good friends. We are now about to, you know, maybe renegotiate NAFTA. There's a whole bunch of discussions about what's happening across the border with with uh, with refugees, etc. Is this the kind of case that our Minister of Justice is going to want to spend uh, political currency? And it's hard to see that um, he would. So, like I said, if 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 there is enough evidence to connect him to a crime and he is not able to um, uh, to beat it in the Ontario court, I don't know that he's going to have much uh, success with the Minister of Justice. Uh, this is not an execution type of uh, a capital offense, so I don't think that there is anything um, that really the minister is going to want in terms of conditions, uh, because typically if somebody faces the death penalty in the United States, uh, our Minister of Justice will require that that not be on the table. But I don't know if that's going to be a situation here. Any idea what these charges, how long he could be incarcerated there? Uh, Honestly, I have no idea. Uh, Again, um, you know, they're going to have to speak to the kind of damage this has caused, uh, what that information was going to be used for. Uh, You know, there may be more than just hacking into emails. It may be part of a bigger scheme. So, you know, uh, I certainly don't have uh, that evidence in front of me. Uh, The case that is being made, I don't know if it has been filed yet with the court. I don't think it has been filed with the court yet. Um, We'll see. We'll see. But uh, right now, it's it's not a pretty picture that... uh, uh, Kareem uh, Baratop is facing in terms of his future, that's for sure. Uh, I'd be very worried. The fact, Giddy, that uh, he's the only one that's been apprehended, I guess there was four implicated in this, three of them uh, back in Russia, so obviously that's going nowhere. Uh, the fact that there is only him and and the other three can't be represented in, in any way, does that influence his case at all? I, I think so. Um I, again, there's a lot of stuff that we don't know what's going on. Is he a small player? Uh, does he have information that he can trade off uh, for some uh, consideration in sentencing? Uh, is there a big fish somewhere that he can uh, connect to this scheme that the Americans would prefer uh, to, you know, to get blood out of rather than a Kareem Baratov? You know, the Americans have to be careful as well. They're dealing with a Canadian citizen. So, you know, if there's a big bad Russian out there somewhere that's the big fish in the scheme, I'm sure they would rather go after him and exact their pound of flesh out of him than a, than a young Canadian. Um, but again, I don't know that we know enough about these allegations to figure out all the dynamics. But right now, if, you know, if I was Baratov, I hope that, uh, you know, I have some information that I could trade away. Uh, you know, and, and, and try to get out of this situation uh, a lot quicker than, uh, uh, than, than withholding that information. Giddy Ma'aman has a, with a senior partner, uh, immigration lawyer. Giddy, thank you very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The University of Guelph Central Student Association has responded to criticism of their classification of Lou Reed's Walk on the Wild Side as transphobic, saying in a post that they do recognize his contributions to the LGBT community, but also that his lyrics are being consumed in a different society context. Would they have been better of just saying that they were wrong? Uh, Apparently what happened here, um, the Student Association, the, the Central Student Association, the CSA, at the University of Guelph, issued a statement of regret that its apology for playing Lou Reed's Walk on the Wild Side as a campus event was perceived to mean something other than it was intended. The student union drew attention, intentional mockery after it issued an apology on Facebook on May 12th for playing the 72 song at an event where bus passes were being distributed. As part of the event, a member of the executive compiled a playlist in order to create a feeling like a road trip of the 70s and 80s. Seems harmless enough, does it not? Uh, They also included, of course, Lou Reed's Walk on the Wild Side. Uh, In in there, uh, the lyrics are, Holly came from Miami FLA, hitched a ride her way across the USA, plucked her eyebrows on the way, shaved her legs, and then he was a she, on it goes. 
In the ensuing apology, it said, quote, We now know the lyrics to this song are hurtful to our friends in the trans community, and we like to unreservedly apologize for this error in judgment. The Students Association's apology became the target uh, uh, from around the world. Reed's friends strenuously objected to the idea that the song is transphobic, uh, is transphobic the Guardian reported. Uh, Lou was open about his complete acceptance of all creatures of the night. And then it goes on from there. Uh, we appreciate Lou Reed as an artist and did not speak to his character in our post. Our sole intent was to acknowledge that the lyrics in the current day are now being consumed in a different society context. Interesting discussion. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, public relations consultant, uh, has penned stuff in Huffington Post, Canada.com, PR Daily. And she is with us now. Alyssa, how are you today? Oh, I'm just fine, Scott. And how are you on this miserable rainy day? It is a little damp, isn't it? Oh, it is. But you know what? Think of it this way. Come uh, July and August, our lawns won't be brown. Well, I was thinking (laughs) about that when I was driving. I thought how lush the, the grass looked in the park. But I digress. Yes, uh, you know, you're mowing it twice a day now. <laughs> Do you get out there on the ride-on tractor much, Alyssa? Do you get out there on the ride-on mower? Not on my suburban lot, <laughs> no. 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 <laughs> Forwards and backwards, it's done. <laughs> Good for you. All right, uh, your thoughts on this controversy? OMG. Controversy. It's like a controversy of stupidity. Yeah. You know, I can just imagine how this happened. They were, what, uh, handing out bus tickets or something on yeah. campus? Seems innocent enough. playing in the background, and some kid turns to another kid and said, that line of this song is awfully transphobic. And the other kid turns to somebody at the Guelph Student Union and says, you should put out a statement apologizing for playing this. And everybody gets up in arms because nobody, you know, wants to hurt anybody else. But heaven forbid they should actually do a little bit of research on Lou Reed, who is quite well known during mm. his, his lifetime, and found how wrong they were. You know, it seems when people want to jump on what I call the clickbait bandwagon. Now, I have to assume that this was done with no malice and that there was a good intention behind it. But this is what happens when you rush out to be first and you rush out with this sort of statement that, you know what, nobody else has ever caught this before. Gee, I wonder why. And if that's the case, then maybe there's a reason they haven't. So, you know, a few more clicks on what's that search engine called google probably would have absolutely uh cleared up their thinking and would never have resulted this faux pas in the first place uh absolutely correct however let's look to a bigger issue what does this say about the headspace on campuses nowadays because at one time it would have been the polar opposite of this it would have been about free thinking being open-minded now it seems that that uh, mantra of the 60s, 70s, 80s, whenever, has now become the institution that it was fighting against, has now become the establishment it is fighting against. Yes, it, it, there has been a big shift in thinking, and it's, um, I guess, sort of the umbrella reasoning for this is uh, uber political correctness. Nobody wants to offend anybody. And then you have to really define offend. You know, uh, you can't sneeze nowadays with thinking that you're going to offend somebody. So the, you know, under the premise of free thinking and academia as an institution that would allow that free thinking, people are now really parsing the words and, and the thoughts very, very carefully because nobody wants to be attacked. You know, when um, we, you know, the, you, you can get on the Internet now and look at the... Um, I think we talked about this last week, was the McDonald's ad in the UK mm-hmm. about the young boy who is remembering his father while sharing, his late father while sharing a filet of fish with his mom at a McDonald's. And a hundred people who were very upset that feeling that McDonald's had exploited the dead in order to sell filet of fish got all up in arms. There was a call from a bereavement charity and suddenly, you know, the, uh, the commercial is pulled. So really, it doesn't take critical mass for people to get angry anymore. You know, it could be 50 people, but when you put it on a social platform like something like Twitter, or in this case, what they saw was on their Facebook, you know, it turns out into be uh, into, into becoming sort of a viral sensation, and nobody wants to be a, a part of that target. 
You know, it's fascinating, and bear with me here, but there'll be a parallel. We just had a a professor on international affairs, Carleton University, uh, Stephanie Carver. We were talking about the Manchester attack Mm -hmm. and terrorism and, you know, everything that has gone on. And I'm asking her for solutions, loaded questions, obviously. And she basically said, in some situations, we have to get back to, and and what we were talking about is, uh, my point to her was, uh, so do we take everyone who is an ISIS sympathizer uh, that may not have, uh, although believes in the ideology, may not have a violent bone in their body, but still believes in this stuff. Do we round all of them up? How do we find, how do we find the uh, the characters who are like this alleged attacker who was born and raised there and then becomes uh, radicalized. And, and she brought up the point of good community policing. It's a case of getting out and getting to know everybody. And this all just reeks of common sense. It all makes perfect sense. But then immediately what came into my mind was, what about the issue of carding that all major uh, cities are going through right now, trying to find the balance between Uh, stereotyping individuals and gathering information and community uh, policing exactly like this professor is talking about. It's the same sort of thing. It's like out of one side of our mouth we say it's okay, but out of another side of our mouth it's terrible. You know, she brings up a good point, the professor, and that's about getting to know each other. And, you know, there are all sorts of... um you know, things that CSIS is doing and other, and other agencies that keep tabs on these people and they monitor their their chatter on whatever platform they're on. And then, you know, when you make the leap to, to carding, which, you know, could be put under the auspices of, you know, getting to know you. But I think that there'd be a number of people who would think that's a very odd way of getting to know me. You know, stopping me in the street and asking who I am, taking my name and phone number and putting it, you know, somewhere. I would not consider that to be sort of self-policing. Um, you know, it's, it's, you can't, you know, you can't really round people up in a room and say, okay, everybody here who has mentioned one thing, uh, derogatory or in support of, of, of ISIS, we're going to, uh, now put you in a room and we're going to analyze you and, um, you know, we're, we're going to monitor all your activities. You know, it's just not... You but know, on one hand, we're saying this behavior is acceptable. On the other hand, we're saying it's not. No, I mean, it also depends, I guess, on the execution of the behavior too, Scott. So, you know, when we talk about um, policing ourselves, so I think what the per- what the professor was getting at was that, you know, to relate it back to the story. So Guelph puts up this ridicu- ridiculous hypothesis, and people look at it and say, okay, first of all, you're damaging a music legend's uh, name, and you haven't even bothered to look, you know, two clicks beyond what could be absolutely the truth. So in that case, that is almost like self-filtering or self-policing. And we see that all the time. When somebody puts something out on a social platform that is blatantly wrong, there are people who will jump on it within seconds, within minutes, and in order to self-correct. So I think that that was her point with this, which is which essentially is exactly what happened. But, you know, when you go to a bigger platform than the Facebook page of the Guelph Student Union, that's when a story gets 100% unwieldy. And you get a clash of ideology and not necessarily will, you know, right win against might. And one of the things that I did was is that I, I, before I came on, I looked up, and I do do this for you, Scott. I do a little bit of research. I thank you for that. Well, there you go. And I I said, you know, give me, you know, Google example of um, famous clickbait stories and uh, or or clickbait headlines. And a lot of them obviously occurred during the uh, Trump-Clinton election. And, you know, they could absolutely be, be fake stories, but... What happens is, is that, you know, people, when you have a story on that big of a platform, it's hard to uh, deny it or create the appropriate parameters or the true narrative of that story just because it's moving so fast and it's almost impossible to do. So, so you have the Guelph Student Union story as a, as a microcosm of something that can be changed very quickly, and therefore an apology was issued, a quasi-apology actually was issued. And then you have other clickbait headlines where the story just moves so quickly that you can't get hold of it. And therefore, uh, a narrative which could be false 
becomes mainstream thinking. Uh, does the fact that they obviously felt they offended someone, does that take priority over the, the background of the song, the history of the artist? That, that means nothing. The point is we offended somebody here. Well, they felt they offended somebody, and, you know, they, they felt that, uh, you know, there, there was a couple lines there where they, they took to be offensive to the, um, the trans community. And, you know, if you, if you actually have listened to the rest of the song, which maybe they didn't, I mean, there were some people who said, okay, well, yeah, that's the line that from Walk on the Wild Side. Um, How is it offensive, though? Well, you know, it's, it's really... Um, they have sort of a very, um, it was very tenuous reasoning that they felt that it was, um, they just felt that the, well, that, the, that, the one is, particular it, line was involvement, was um, offensive to the LGBTQ community. Uh, community. And, and that society views this differently now. Yeah, well, exactly. And also you have to take the lyrics within the spirit that they were intended. Exactly. So, you know, the lyric talked about um, a woman coming from Miami, FLA. As I've listened to the song, you know how it goes. Yep. And, um, you know, first of all, he was, you know, she was a, he was, he turned himself into a she. Mm-hmm. So they felt that that was offensive. And it was the furthest thing from offensive. But, you know, there are other people who think that's what you thought was offensive. What about the line and the colored girls were singing? Colored girls yeah. were singing. Yeah, and, oh, well, that wasn't offensive. Probably because they didn't even go read the rest of the lyrics of the song. So in this, in the, in our zeal to protect, we often don't do our homework, and you need to do your homework if you're going to come out with sweeping generalizations about narratives. Number one, and especially if it's about somebody who has had a huge impact on music, such as Lou Reed, to not even you know easily find out where he was coming from when he wrote those lyrics, or what he was against, or what he was for. Well, was folly. So somebody writes this apology based on what? I apologize that Lou Reed wrote this. I mean, first of all, how presumptuous is that? Yes. And then yes. How, not only that, how presumptuous it is. It's like this huge sense of entitlement that some kid who goes to Guelph thinks that they need to apologize for Lou Reed. I mean, that's the funniest part about this whole thing. So what have we learned from this? Uh, will the pendulum of political correctness swing back? First of all, the first thing we've learned is don't mess with Lou Reed, <laughs> and don't mess with people who have, who are fans of Lou Reed because they will come at you come at you quickly. Has the pendulum swung back? Yes, it has swung back. That, um, but I, I think that you know we have to look at every each one of these examples, Scott, in context. Mm-hmm. So when you have Nazi sympathizers who want to speak on a university campus, knowing what we know about history, is that free speech or is that propaganda? And a lot of that is falling into that bucket. So you can't really say in, some, in all cases, university and academia is no longer the bastion of you know, the, uh, batting around the, the differences of ideas. Because, you know, perhaps we didn't have enough information or we were learning about certain ideas in the first place. But when there are ideologies that uh, clearly go um, against the grain or against our democratic view of life, then, yeah, I think that it's okay for people to, to speak out and say, this is wrong. We don't need to hear about the alt-right or we don't need to hear about this. And if you do, go, if you want to, go to one of their meetings and knock yourself out. How did the University of Guelph handle this? Uh, rather than um, apologize for it, they tried to justify their stance. Well, what, you know, the fact again, that they did I mean, that, who wrote this say? thing? I mean, who wrote this apology? And, and did their communications uh, people look at it? Like, maybe they did. It says in a statement issued on Wednesday, the CSA said that its Facebook message was intended for our internal student audience. Okay, so let's just look at that. When you put something on a Facebook site yeah. that is public, yeah. what internal audience? Like, you know, these are kids how is who that have an been ex- using social platforms for a few years now. And how is that an excuse? And how is that an excuse? It's really, it's really stupid, actually. I mean, to, I can't even think of a better word. But the stupidity associated with that line itself is ridiculous. It's intended for our internal student audience. Why? Because you think they're idiots? Well, I think not. And then we subsequently removed the post from our page after it generated negative and transphobic comments. 
oh, you know, so here's their big aha moment. So they're not really, it's almost like they still think that the line That's is, my point. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't think that, I think they still think, the, yeah, I still ahead. think they think that their decision was right. They're just trying to justify it to those, to those that are complaining. Well. Nothing's changed here, I don't think. Well, I mean, the bottom line is, you know, when my kid's looking at universities to go to, Let's just scratch Guelph off the list, Scott. Do you think that that, how does that resonate? How does this resonate in the public? Or does it? I mean, it? you know, this is, this is just one, you know, microcosm an example from a student-run group. And certainly doesn't, uh, hopefully, reflect uh, the views of the university at large. So, but, you know, it's these little things, these little quirky things that, you know, that happen and they have this sticking power. So when you think of Guelph, do you associate it with those that crazy group of kids who thought that Lou Reed was transphobic? (laughs) So, you know, there's these things that you just, you just don't want them to happen. And and quite frankly, I think there was quite a bit of a lag time between when the post came out and when the apology came out. And you can imagine them sitting there, you know, digging in their heels. Well, we still think it's true. Okay. If you think it's true, write a hypothesis you know, submit the essay to your professor and see how it goes from there. And hopefully he's not a Lou Reed fan. Yeah, and the other thing, too, is is that, you know, we're not everybody's entitled to your opinion. That's you know, another people, thing. You know, the, the thing about social media is that I had an egg salad sandwich today, and it was really good, and I want to tell you all. Okay, so maybe you want to hear my opinion. And I put stuff on social media all the time. So, But, you know, just because you think it, and if you have an opinion, yeah, maybe you, you want to put it, you know, on your Facebook page. But maybe you don't want to put it on a larger platform because the likelihood is if you haven't done a lick of research, you're wrong. I uh, can't let you go. Got a minute left or so. Uh, ask you about Trump on the world stage. Uh, of course, the G7 and NATO summits. Boy, if uh, a picture could talk, the picture of him and the Pope uh, standing beside each other. My goodness, you could have had a <laughs> caption contest there. What are your thoughts on how he's being perceived on the world stage? Well, I read one article this morning. It said, you know, when... Um, Obama went to on his European tour and made a speech. You know, there were thousands upon thousands of people thronging to hear him speak. You remember when he was in Germany and he spoke alongside Angela Merkel. You know, no such reception is, is coming Trump's way. That's the first thing. And, you know, the second thing is that there's certain narratives that seem to be taking over here because of his, um, his tour. One narrative is every time he goes to help, you know, hold Melania's hand, there's been two memes now that have come out that or two um, clips that have come out now that show him swatting away his hand. That's the first thing. The second, you know, the second narrative is, is that he can't hold a secret. So he apparently got some intelligence from the UK mm-hmm. uh, about the Manchester bombings, and suddenly the leak is, a, is appropriate, is associated with the U- United States. And, you know, the first response that you have whenever you are accused of something like that is that you're going to hold an inquiry as to where the leak is happening. So naturally, that was the latest headline that just came out in the hour. So, and the other thing, too, is that all these things that he was saying during his campaign, that, you know, there's certain um, today's of, uh, of uh, NATO that they weren't going to hold up, uh, such as Article 5, which means you come to the defense of the other NATO countries. And, you know, they're like, oh, no, 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 we, we, we still uphold that, and we still believe that NATO is important. But remember, you know, the big brouhaha he made of uh, NATO and how it wasn't um, effective, and there were many uh, countries that weren't paying their fair share. Yeah. He's really backpedaled on a lot of these narratives, and people remember them. And I have to think that every time one of these things come up, comes up where they say that, you know, he was thinking this and now he's definitely backpedaling and all that, you know, do they think that people don't remember? So it's like they don't have a strong enough narrative of what they want to accomplish or say on each one of these stops. And the only narrative that I can really pick out is that we're going to talk about terror- terrorism. We're going to talk about terrorism. And that's it. That's all. And I don't even see that as being such a strong point that's being upheld on each one of his stops. Alyssa Freeman has been with us, public relations consultant, Alyssa PR. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've certainly heard of revenge porn, or maybe you haven't. When, uh, you know, people get together and in the world that we live in now, uh, they're always taking naked pictures of each other uh, in the act because that's what, you know, everybody does now. Huh? Oh, well, some do. 
So, uh, you know, uh, there's scenarios where uh, uh, a guy and a girl together, I guess it could be anybody, girl, girl, guy, guy, it doesn't matter. Um, and they're dating and they're having fun and they're young and they're innocent and they're taking pictures of themselves. And then all of a sudden the relationship ends and somebody is scorned as a result. Uh, all of a sudden pictures start making their way to the Internet that were supposed to be kept private between the two individuals, which now no longer have a relationship, therefore no loyalty to each other. You see where this is going. Uh, similar sort of scenario with an Edmonton woman. Uh, an Edmonton woman, single mother, uh, two kids, uh, dating a man, and um, it ends. So uh, then the woman believes that the man has set up a whole series of uh, dating sites with her name on them, They're creating all these false profile pages and such. Uh, to the point that in the span of four evenings, uh, the woman had 30 strangers just knocking on her door or buzzing her apartment uh, looking for casual sex. And remember, she's got two kids that she lives with as well. So this has continued on. Uh, This man, apparently, in her words, very, very abusive. And she wants this to stop, but is having difficulty making that happen. To talk more about all of this, David Frazier is with his privacy lawyer, McGinnis Cooper, and on the line with us now. Hello, David. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for taking the time to uh, join us. So what sort of recourse does this woman have or anyone that would be in this position? Well, it's, it's a very difficult position to be in. I don't think that there's any doubt about that. It's not clear to me what sort of response she is getting from the police. Uh, because it seems to me that this is a situation where it could and probably likely does cross the line into criminal harassment. Usually that's done where you stalk somebody yourself or or where somebody else is directly stalking you. Uh, But the criminal code provision also provides for doing it indirectly, which would be kind of sending, uh, I guess, people who don't know necessarily that they're being sent, but causing them to be sent in order to uh, harass her and where she would reasonably fear for her safety. And you mentioned also their children in the home. Uh, So I would hope that the police are are kind of according this the priority that they should, although it it has been my experience uh, consistently that that very often frontline police officers in Canada don't have enough uh, training and understanding to extend the traditional laws of Canada into cyberspace, where they continue to apply in exactly the same way as they do on street corners and in uh, in businesses. Has uh, this person who she's alleging, alleging doing this, uh, have they found a loophole here by not actually doing the stalking, but by getting others to do it? I, I don't think so, although it, it certainly becomes a bit of an outlier. <laughs> it's quite straightforward if somebody kind of appears at your house and causes you to fear for your safety. that. There's no doubt that crosses the line. But doing it indirectly, the word indirectly is also in the criminal code. Uh, there could also be kind of conspiracy to do it and, and things like that. And it may well be that, that once a, the police knock on the door and uh, try to interview the fellow, that, that he might uh, stop, assuming that that is, that is the case, although it appears more likely than not that this is kind of the scenario that you described of a, of a disgruntled ex uh, who's trying to get some form of revenge on, uh, or at least intimidate uh, his former girlfriend. At uh, what point does this go from publishing inaccurate information on social media or, you know, creating mischief there to actually abuse? Well, I think it, it really it depends upon the intent. And, uh, and if the effect was intended, which is to cause her to fear rather than it'd be one thing to send a whole bunch of pizzas to her house. Right. Uh, but it, this is a very different uh, sort of situation. And, uh, and we actually had a situation in 2014 in, in Nova Scotia that was similar, but even more menacing, uh, where, in, where a, a, a allegedly ex, ex-boyfriend had set up a uh, Facebook, not a Facebook profile, but a, but a profile on a website uh, for people with, I guess, I don't know, un- unusual sexual interests, mm-hmm. uh, suggesting that the person had a rape fantasy and wanted people oh to visit her at home and in the messages that, that the imposter had with the other people suggesting, oh, no, this is exactly what she wanted. But, of course, some guys actually appeared on her doorstep imagining that, that this was the scenario yeah. that they were entering into, which is just an absolutely horrible, horrifying sort of scenario. Uh, can this be proven? Uh, from what I've read, the, the police say that this is just a matter of time before they can track this online. 
Well, certainly it's been my experience that, uh, that by and large people uh, may imagine that they are anonymous online, but ultimately they're pseudonymous. Uh, that, that you leave a fair amount of digital exhaust in your activities online. And so a, a determined uh, somebody like Edward Snowden, for example, could probably fully cover his tracks, but, uh, but most people don't have those sorts of skills. And, and also it's been my experience that people who have bad judgment to do things like this usually don't have the, uh, don't have the wherewithal mm. to, to do that. And so a production order against Plenty of Fish to get information about the user, uh, there would probably have been an email uh, used to register. There would also be IP address information uh, that could be correlated to, to other information. It becomes a matter of triangulation. So online crime is a little bit trickier because there, there are technicalities and, and third parties involved, which is different from some guy just standing in the sidewalk in front of your house. So the mother claims it's the ex. Will this be proven then? Well, I think it'd be easier to prove on a civil standard, I would expect, where, where you only have to prove it's more likely than not. Any sort of criminal conviction requires beyond a reasonable doubt. But if, if the evidence trail is there, I think it'd be sufficient to, uh, to identify. And I do think that we need police prosecutors and judges who have the imagination to think and, and see how our existing criminal code, in fact, does apply to online activities. It really should be focused on, on the mischief, not the means through which that was carried out. Uh, over and above whether this is legal or illegal, is this a red flag for other activity? Should, be, should police be acting on this? Oh, I, I think so, absolutely. If, if a whole bunch of strangers are, are appearing on this woman's doorstep for the purpose of, of harassing her, the police need to absolutely be taking it seriously. I don't think there's, there's any doubt about that. And I think too often, uh, at least I've seen, where the police kind of shrug some things off like this as being a, a civil matter, uh, but in fact, that, that in many cases, it crosses the, the line into criminal. And you know, one thing that, that is sometimes, unfortunately, the byproduct of, of investigations like this, you might recall the, the prosecution of an individual for harassment using Twitter in Ontario a couple years ago, where the individual was, was acquitted. Now, there was some publicity that said, well, that means you can't harass, criminally harass somebody through Twitter, but that really turned on its on its facts. The key is that the person has to fear for their safety and having guys show up uh, unexpected looking for uh, some form of intimacy I think is enough for most people to reasonably fear for their safety. Um, what is the responsibility of the site here? Plenty of fish. Well I think that's that's a really interesting question. Uh, some, some dating websites do verify people's uh, identities. They do additional steps to try to make sure that they're not uh, particularly problematic or not threatening or don't have a, a bad, they do kind of background checks. Plenty of fish, as I understand it. I'm not a user of the site, but I, I gather it's a free site. They don't do any of that sort of verification. And I think among the reasons why it is free, which probably results in it being so popular, is that they don't have to incur the additional cost of doing all that additional additional work. But I gather that they do have terms of service, that they do have community standards, and setting up fake profiles is, is contrary to those standards. I, I would hope that for the sake of the safety of their community and, and to continue to be a welcoming place for, for others um, and to not be the, the continued target of this sort of thing, that they would react swiftly. And so, for example, if the dating profiles that have been put up to date uh, have something in common, for example, like a common IP address or, or anything else like that, that they can not only shut those profiles down, but to prevent new ones being created using those, uh, using those measures. Similar to what Facebook uh, announced recently, which is that if, uh, if somebody identifies an image or a video as being revenge porn, um, that Facebook now has technology that, that uses a visual fingerprint of that image or a digital fingerprint and will take down that image across their site and across Instagram and will prevent it from being posted again. So it, it may be a little bit of a whack-a-mole sort of situation, but, uh, but I do think that uh, technology can actually be beneficial in these sorts of situations. They might not actually cure the problem, but they, they maybe can, uh, can alleviate it to a certain degree. Uh, she says, uh, the mother says that she's tried to have the fake profiles removed, uh, has been unsuccessful, uh, been unsuccessful, has tried to mes message the company, called, uh, has, no, has received no direct response. A spokesperson uh, for Plenty of Fish uh, said that uh, the accounts could be removed immediately uh, if uh, usernames are provided, but if those are fraudulent, uh, how do you find them? Well, I think that's, that's going to be a very difficult thing. And uh, Again, is that up to the company or is that up to the police to do? 
Well, I, I think it, it will likely end up being a, being a joint effort. That I, I would hope that uh, Plenty of Fish would themselves try to be as proactive as they can uh, to address situations like this as they, as they arise. The police have very limited ability to require anybody to remove any sort of content from, from anywhere. But what, one advantage that, that this woman involved has is that Plenty of Fish is a Canadian company, so they're not dealing with the cross-border aspects, which comes up so often in the, in the Internet context. Um, but there may be additional things that they could implement. So, for example, obviously some sort of either the profile itself or the messages that are being sent from that profile have included the woman's address. Maybe they can actually scan messages for that text, for example, uh, and to, in order to kind of narrow down the pool of suspects and then tell, they can't just hand it over to the police, but to be able to say to the police, we have information that you'll want to go and get a production order for and we'll preserve it for you in the meantime. Uh, how important is it to these companies to get a handle on this, to fix this? Do they care or is it only in their best interest to clear this stuff up? Well, I think economically, like even if you look at them as the most mercenary of, of entities, and I don't think that's necessarily the, the case, um, I think it's in their economic best interest to make sure that they don't become the target of much greater, for example, regulatory scrutiny or that they don't become turn into a bit of a cesspool. I know, for example, that there's been a lot of discussion about the kind of bad actors on Twitter who are who, who relentlessly harass women in particular and, and others. And I think that, uh, that there are a whole lot of people who are feeling themselves unwelcome on that platform. And so I think it's incumbent upon them to, to make efforts to make sure that that happens. And I think for, for a company like Plenty of Fish, uh, they don't want to be the kind of synonymous with this sort of thing, I, I would think. I think they want to uh, keep their, they have community standards and uh, in terms of service for a reason, and I do think that they should probably uh, make sure they're up to the task and make sure that they're enforcing them. Lots are skeptical about the Internet nowadays, as they are about anything. Um, is it only in these companies' best interest to remove not only sites like this, but even the whole fake news issue? Well, the, I think that, that one thing that I've noticed just on that particular topic is that the, the regular news sources have actually significantly upped their game. And I think that, that perhaps the, the scrutiny of fake news and the lens through which people are looking at it and, and perhaps the cynicism that goes along with it means that, uh, that there's, uh, as I said, they've, they've upped their game. And it may also be that, that as more people are cynical, concerned, or maybe turned off, that those good actors are going to make sure that they're doing their absolute best and making sure that people know about it, simply so that they stand out from the crowd, particularly if the, if the average is kind of going down and down and down. They, want to, uh, they would want to stand above that. Uh, does this woman have any legal recourse? Well, certainly. So I mentioned the criminal code related to harassment. I, I think there probably is civil recourse. Um, that one could get, get an injunction and damages related to, for example, the intentional infliction of emotional distress. Uh, one advantage of the civil route is that you don't have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. And in fact, you don't have to have the smoking gun in your hand or, or in the evidence bag to file a, a civil lawsuit. And once you've done that, you actually have the opportunity to uh, cross-examine or examine the, uh, the defendant under oath and get other relevant information. So it may, in fact, be a very useful avenue. The problem with that is that uh, access to justice in the civil justice system is not cheap. You, have to, you don't have to hire a lawyer, but otherwise it's a pretty confusing place, uh, and lawyers don't come cheap. Uh, this sort of crime increasing, or are users figuring it out and smartening up, realizing they can be traced? Well, I think it's actually increasing, but it, but it may simply only be a matter of the population that are spending more and more and more of their time online. And that, so if you imagine the scenario into the kind of the twisted mind of somebody who wants to get revenge against a, an ex-girlfriend, um, probably these days the first place that they're going to try to do it is going to be online um, because they imagine that they have a measure of anonymity, which they, they have a degree of it, but it's certainly not complete anonymity. Um, and it's, it's very easy to do. I think it's probably easier to, this person may in fact have never left the comfort of their couch in order to cause this sort of, uh, uh, this sort of consternation on the part of his ex-girlfriend, um, assuming, of course, all the allegations are true, but, uh, but 
to actually stalk someone, you actually have to get out of your couch, out of your house, and, and do that. And uh, so I think the ease with which these sorts of things can be done uh, probably means that, the, that they are, in fact, going up. Um, and, you know, you and I are doing more and more things, and your listeners are doing more and more things online these days than we ever were five years before. And so it should not be at all surprising that the amount of online mischief has gone up accordingly and probably proportionately. Uh, any tips for anyone how not to get caught in a web like this? I think it's very difficult in, in the scenario in which this woman finds herself. This is not because of anything she did, and I don't think it's necessary because of anything she can do uh, or could have done differently. That This is somebody who, who knows her address, knows her, which is simply a byproduct of having been in a relationship with her, um, and is using that information to her disadvantage. I think there's, there's very little that she could have done proactively to prevent this sort of thing from happening. And, and unfortunately, the reality, he, she characterized, or at least some of the reporting I've seen, characterized him as abusive. Um, and I would not want to find myself in a situation where I'm blaming the victim for something that is completely uh, the, the act of, of a scumbag guy. Do we need to re-examine laws around these issues? Um, I don't think we necessarily need to re-examine or open them up significantly. What I do think we need to do is we need to have better uh, understanding uh, and within our police services and within the prosecution service and perhaps within the judiciary of how existing criminal law can, in fact, be and should be applied online. And if there are any particular challenges with that, then we need to do some fine-tuning rather than some significant overhauling. So, for example, the, the police, if they have reasonable grounds to believe that a crime has been committed and they, and they have reasonable grounds to believe that, uh, that Plenty of Fish has evidence related to that crime, they can get a production order. So they can get all the information related to those profiles and have it, to, and have it handed over. So we don't need to, for example, uh, force Internet service providers or, or other service providers like Plenty of Fish to kind of hand over customer information on a, on a whim, um, the police actually do have those powers, and it's simply a matter of, of making sure that they, that they use them, and the offenses that, we're, that they're investigating and prosecuting uh, are uh, sufficiently flexible or, or are fine-tuned to deal with this new online context. David Frazier has been with us, privacy lawyer at McGinnis Cooper in Nova Scotia. A woman in Edmonton suspects her ex-boyfriend behind men arriving at her home late at night looking for sexual encounters as she uh, alleges that the boyfriend has set up uh, dating sites, fake sites in her name. David, thank you for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. Oh, it's my pleasure. You take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.